Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Three people and you're going to have four weeks do something. <laughs> it started out of pure stubbornness, which is great. <laughs> Without necessarily meaning to, I think we found this quite interesting niche. No, we did some stuff, and the fact that it's invisible means it works. <laughs> I think art is encoded knowledge and uh, experience. At that time, we were really fascinated by the whole transmedia concept. That was it, not the time-travelling robot idea that we had. Hello and welcome to the Technique Podcast. I am Sam Fry and this is the podcast where we speak to artists about technology. In today's episode, my co-host Richard F. Adams is speaking to a British artist about diseases, biology and how this can be turned into conceptual art. The artist is Anna Dimitriou. Anna creates bio-art, sculptures, installations and digital media that explores our relationship to infectious diseases, synthetic biology and robotics. As you might imagine, there is various conversations around diseases in this episode, including coronavirus, which is clearly a hot topic at the moment. So let's get into the conversation, which starts with Anna explaining what a genome is. There's a thing called a genome, which is like the instruction book for a living thing, would be a really simplistic way of saying it. We can now read these genomes from the, from the organism, so we can find out the instructions that they use to exist form. So yeah. you've got a genome. There's a human genome. There's a genome for Staphylococcus aureus bacteria. There's a genome for an ant. There's genomes for... Yeast. I mean, everything, every living thing has this genome. And we didn't used to be able to have access to this. We didn't know what DNA looked like. We didn't know how to read it. And now in the last, you know, sort of 20 years or so, we've reached a stage where we can now have access to this and we're starting to understand some of the ways in which the genes in the DNA affect life form what is it about that that's interesting to you as an artist because it's the very essence of life but what interest what is it about the medium if you like because i mean that's an the medium's very invisible yeah but it's also huge like the genome of an organism can be enormous what do you mean by enormous i don't get any sense of scale bases uh... so it's just the amount of data and i forget alex knows yeah so i mean so you've got all this data you're working with um bacteria have much shorter genomes like 2.8 2.8 million bases for a Staphylococcus aureus bacteria. So now we can read the genomes of bacteria and we can look at them in terms of like where they came from because if there are minor changes in the bases, you can literally see that this strain is related to this strain, came from this strain, so you can tell who gave it to who. And this is, how, in fact, how we track our own evolution and adaptations through... Can, millions yeah. of years. I mean, we, we can, can do, do to an extent, but yeah. and if they have the access to the DNA, of course, yeah. that's that's when it gets subject to having DNA. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, it's corrupted over Whoa. time. So in the uh, you know, you go back to sort of mammoths. So they've been looking for really fresh mammoths. Didn't they find one DNA. recently? I mean, there's two different 
camps. There's the people that are trying to get the DNA and kind of cross breed the genes with an elephant or something like that. And then there's the sort of George Church side where they're trying to cobble together something that looks like a mammoth out of what's called synthetic biology, which is one of my big interests. I mean, my two big interests in my work are antibiotic resistance, I think, which is one of the main existential threats to humanity. Dame Sally Davis, uh, who was the last chief medical officer, said it was a bigger threat to humanity than climate change. Um, so that's something I'm working on. I think as we're recording this, we're seeing this. The, well, we're seeing the fuss about the coronavirus as we're recording this. Yeah, I mean, this. that's a different thing because that's a virus. But nonetheless, so. it's a biological threat in the sense yeah. that it, it spreads and can and corrupt and kill and yeah. whatever else. And I we mean, don't know how to deal with it often, it seems to me, as a, a, a bystander. I mean, it's a new one. These, these viruses yeah. kind of come up and disappear. At the moment, it doesn't have a massive death rate. It's nothing. It's no Ebola virus but you know if it if it spreads a lot then that's a big problem I mean the biggest sort of outbreak like was that was the Spanish flu which is a virus but mm. this isn't a f- influenza despite what the newspapers kind of put on their covers they're loving the story they're calling it, it a yeah. flu it's not influenza so it's like it's a respiratory infection but it's not an influenza that's a different different kind of virus. But it seems to me there's an awful lot of biological threats to humanity in that sense. And there always has been. The plague, Sinia pestis bacteria, killed around a third of the population of Europe and around half the population of China in its day. Wow. So, you know, these things... And, and now it's not such a big threat because it's treatable with antibiotics, but also because we don't live very close together we used to all live very close together and we had really poor sanitation and things like that people would all sleep in the same rooms and so this is the biggest thing is like crowding is one of the biggest things for infections to spread i mean a lot of cities in china are very crowded i mean they don't mm, live, they are they don't live like 20 in a room but the cities are very dense so this possibly is a problem with things spreading as well so talk to me about how this interest in that and I'm saying very general side of things. How's that fed into your art? I mean, where did you start as an artist? Well, I did an art foundation. The classic foundation degree. Um, I did a degree in painting and a master's in painting. So what veered you off? Well, I was, I was interested in the subject of working with cell biology and things yeah. like that and referencing like things around immortality and those sort of mythic things around science. Because I think my science training was through just an ordinary state school and it wasn't brilliant in fact it was quite off-putting so I didn't really get into science at school but I had my own interests which were sort of separate to what they were teaching at school so I dropped like most of the sciences and I was more into languages and things like that when I was a kid but I was interested in in stuff around it and interested in things like I wrote my master's dissertation on vampire mythology which is related again it's really related to plague yeah. it's related to tuberculosis as well so they've they've found a lot of richly buried corpses who've been which were buried as if they were vampires you know the head cut off and a stake through the heart and they've sequenced the dna in the bones and things and found that they all had tb ah. so it's like the way these diseases have been used to well these myths that kind of fascinate us, these very important stories and things, are all to explain this stuff we don't understand, which is disease. So it's really, I think I find all that stuff really interesting. And there's this idea, which I've written about a lot, of the in terms of the sublime, in terms of bacteria, this, this artistic concept, which 
I mean, Edmund Burke, who was this sort of 18th century philosopher, he wrote this book called Philosophical Inquiry on the Beautiful and the Sublime, where he tried to work out mm. what thing, which things were sublime, and it goes as far as creating a list. And he says the very littlest things are sublime, as well as the big but I think that comes through even in um, like War of the Worlds mm. at the end. That I exact mean, philosophy is yeah, there. that's after. Oh, no, I know. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. saying. I think that's had an impact. Yeah. That's an immediate impact. Having yeah. just re- recently reread it, you yeah. know, you, you sort of see that. That um, Wells is all about God's smallest creations mm, having the mm. most power and, and beauty. And, and Burke also says, apart from, you know, he talks about mountains and things mm. like that, he also says that obscurity is very important for something to be sublime. So if you can't see it, if you can't perceive it, then it's more sublime. But then, I mean, he, he also inspired Immanuel Kant to write his critique of judgment and other books which are all about defining the sublime in terms of this mathematical sublime and the dynamical sublime so there's this idea of like your brain which is a sort of I'm going to paraphrase Jean-Francois Lyotard here sort of your mind straining at the edge of reason at the edges of itself to try and contain this this concept which if you think about these tiny bacteria these diseases these viruses and the DNA if you start getting into all that it has this sense of the Sublime. Really interesting is this difference between what the public are told. So yeah. this thing like coronavirus, deadly flu. It's not a flu, and it is deadly. But everyone that so far died, and it's always a fast-moving field with this sort of stuff. When news, what they call zoonosis, come out, which is a infection that moves from an animal species to a human species. These things are quite fast-moving, but the people that have died from it all had underlying health conditions. They were immune-compromised or had, had other health conditions. So it's it's very different to the flu, which tends to attack people with very good immune systems because you're actually killed by the immune response, like with Spanish flu or something. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the fact that your body raises the temperature so much to combat the infection, it goes into shock. And that's usually one of the, the things that kills people so this isn't working like that but the way they present it in like the daily mail on the cover of the newspaper or something it's a completely wrong story i mean you only get they do tell the truth in the papers but you have to read say 70 percent of the newspapers do actually give the facts but you have to read like 10 paragraphs and it's in the last paragraph very briefly they say what it really is The purpose of television or the purpose of newspapers is to sell more newspapers. And the way they do that is that they try and make you want to follow this story. They soapify it almost. You're more likely to follow a story that you're scared or worried about than something nice. People don't tend to pick up the papers just to hear about uh, some flowers bloomed today that were particularly nice. That doesn't come in the news. It's, It's this sort of scary thing and you have to keep following the story it's the same with the tv news and it's to keep you watching it's that the purpose of the tv news is to keep you watching the news it's not to inform you about the news it's to get their numbers up it's to get their advertising revenue or in the case of the bbc prove their relevance to to the government or something appreciation grand opinion on this it's best to kind of reflect back on the news like six months hence and see what really happened The 
thing that was a question on QI last night was about my MRSA quilt, which is a quilt designed to communicate. So this is a physical it's quilt. It's a physical quilt that has squares on it, which are impregnated with MRSA bacteria grown on a blue chromogenic agar. So it's a it's a colour changing agar that makes the bacteria grow in a certain colour on it. Mm-hmm. So the bacteria becomes blue. And then I grew the bacteria on the quilt square, as this is with the Modernising Medical Microbiology Project at the Royal Sussex County Hospital here, Public Health England, and, and Modernising Medical Microbiology at the University of Oxford. And I grew the grew the bacteria on the quilt squares and I used antibiotics to pattern the quilt squares because I think before we started this interview, you were saying, well, you can't really control bacteria. They're this chaotic thing, but you can. You can control them with antibiotics. You I can think stop I was expressing my complete from, ignorance on it. Yeah, you can stop it. them from growing. You can make them grow in certain shapes and patterns yeah. and things. And the combinations of, like, two antibiotics can cause weird effects as well. I mean, go so, back to that thing you said about you chose blue, for instance. Well, it is... The, as an so artist, a, what, what sort of colours can you choose, Think well, you know, How well, do you I deal mean, there's with that? A, there, well, there's, 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 in this case, there's a choice of two with Staph Ah, right. Um, there's, there's one that grows black and there's one... Well, there's, there's its natural colour, which is yellowy, mm-hmm. hence the name. Staphylococcus means round bunches of grapes that are golden, aureus. Okay, round that's... golden bunches of grapes. And that's basically what it looks like. So it's these little round colonies as well, and the, the actual bacteria under the microscope are round. But if you don't stain them, then you can't really see them very well. And as a diagnostic test in medicine, I mean, the technology is moving on constantly, so it's they have new tests now for diagnostic. But they have this this test where you've got these agar plates that have got this special dye in them. They look kind of yellow, a yellowy cream-coloured stuff. Agar's a kind of seaweed jelly. I remember um, agar jelly from school. Yeah. It's one of the few things. So uh, so it's a jelly made out of seaweed, but it's a really high-tech thing now that they've done all this specific diagnostic stuff. And this one's got a, a dye in it. So when the bacteria, if it's MRSA or if it's Staph aureus, depending on which of the ones you buy, because there are two, it will grow blue. So there's one where only MRSA, only the drug-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, as MRSA means methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, so it's resistant to an antibiotic called methicillin, which is related to penicillin. It will grow blue, basically. And then the non-resistant one will grow yellow. What I did was I got the agar and I laid cloth on it, one of the chaps I was working with, James Price, said to me, and it looks really nice. It grows this, he's a, he's a microbiologist, and he said, it grows this nice kind of denim blue. And I was like, does it? <laughs> Do you think I could grow that on cloth? And he's like, I don't know. I've never tried it. And obviously it's pathogen. It's quite a dangerous pathogen, bacteria that can make you ill. So it was like, how are we going to sterilise it? And will the colours stay when we try and sterilise it? Can you keep the colour and sterilise it? And so we didn't know if any of this would work. wasn't aware that anyone had tried anything like that before. But we grew it on it and we autoclaved it, which is how they um, clean like operating theatre instruments and things like yeah. that in the hospital. And it kept the colour. So I was able to then stitch it together. I've gone on, I've made another quilt, which is an antibiotic resistance quilt as well, that was using lots of different coloured agar jellies of all these different chromogenic agars. And I did a piece that was in the science museum working with Brighton and Sussex Medical School and Kevin Cole and Dara Cantlin and Martin Llewellyn and 
Dr John Paul is for a display in the Superbugs show at the Science Museum. But that was just the agar plates that we preserved. So they looked alive but were actually sterile or killed. That yeah. alive, that quilt? No, that's dead now. So, so it's that... all dead because you couldn't... How do you wash it? Oh, you don't wash it. <laughs> you don't use it. So it's, it's like asking how do you wash a painting? <laughs> okay. So... It's, you know, it's a real object. It's, it's effectively a painting, and this is what I'm getting to. Yeah. So you're producing effectively so an I mean, artefact. So I all the objects that I make are kind of yeah. like fine art, fine art objects. I come from a fine art yeah. background, so I make sculptures and installations and things, but they have and contain and use DNA. So this door, you can see this old antique door. This is going to be about tuberculosis, so I'm going to carve it all over with these holes which is like the you can see on this box i'm pointing out here which is another work in progress this is a box that contained a pneumothorax machine which was used for collapsing the lungs of tuberculosis patients and you can see over there on that table those weird antique looking jars they're the cylinders that we use to introduce i mean the, the jars air. we're looking at are old what look like victorian bell jars with tubes down the middle they've got that sort of feel about them that, that you might see in edwardian surgery drama or yeah, something yeah. yeah yeah and they were used for introducing air into the lung cavity of patients in order to collapse a lung mm. to give it a rest but this was a very common treatment for tuberculosis and i'm very interested in that so this door will be carved with this effect which is the kind of texture these tiny little holes and things that i've been working on i've got a few pieces like this i really like doing this Carving. I have to um, say what Anna's yeah, pointing at at the moment is, is a wooden box that's a bit bigger than a shoe box. In it are these most amazing organic looking, like the interior of a crunchy bar, the sort of holes. <laughs> I showed one of the other pieces like this in the Médecins Sans Frontières conference last year in Tashkent. And it was 500 scientists and healthcare workers from all over. And straight away they walked up to him and said, oh, lung tissue with TB. Oh, they <laughs> so, got it straight so, away. Yeah, yeah? If you know what you're yeah. looking at, it, that's exactly what it looks like. But this one's going to be carved with that effect as well. And then I will be rubbing a TB strain of DNA into the holes. Wow. In this case. You won't see it. It won't be dangerous either. No, it's sterile. Because no. okay, DNA is just... just the instruction book. Uh, of course, yeah. It's, it's just yeah. like having... It's like having a nuclear bomb, but you've just got the instruction book, so you, that's not actually going to hurt you. Or you've got the, you... the wires and everything without the plutonium. Or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, it's, yeah, it's not even that. No, it's more like the manual. It is literally like the, the instruction book. It's the yeah. manual. Got you. The piece is about colonialism and tuberculosis because we have this idea, and the way it's presented again in newspapers is that foreigners come over to the UK bringing these diseases, and we need to close our borders. And actually, when you look at the genomics of it and you compare it to historic DNA or historic organisms, and if you look at the DNA of organisms like that, old TB and things, you can see that actually there's this strain called the Euro-American strain, which is where a lot of the lineage of the ones that are found in places like India now are, because they were taken over during the colonial period, which is what we think has happened. It might turn out to be some different explanation, but the the belief is that it was during the colonial era, people travelled to places, these warmer climes, to, you know, take the cure. They didn't have those strains there then. And so they're more affected by them than over here. So we don't have it as much now because we sort of evolved immunity, but they have it more. We'd had it for centuries here, so it was limited people, but it was introduced there. So it's this idea of coming back and doors and things like that that seemed really important to me. So the DNA is this 
this story of colonialism and the door. And then I find these historic objects, like, so we struggled to get this, like, antique door. But the main thing is this, I got this doorknob and I had to have it because it was like, people will have all touched this door yeah. in the sanatorium. So America's got an amazing history of tuberculosis care and all these, like, big sanatoria in places like Colorado Springs, which was basically a third of the population of Colorado Springs in its heyday as the health seekers location was TB patients living in these funny sort of, I think they're hexagonal huts. Well, they used um, to do it though, didn't yeah. they? they? When they were seriously ill, if they were wealthy, they'd go away. I mean, yeah. in Europe, we went to they went sanatoria to in Switzerland yeah, and Davos, things like that. The, well, Davos, indeed, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you see that quite a lot in 1930s films. Mm where people are in sanatoriums and then something horrific happens and they investigate it. How do you approach communicating that through exhibitions and through putting, when you put your work on display? Um, I have small text to kind of explain it to people. But, I mean, I think the idea that these devices we use to mm. collapse the patient's lungs because this was in a time when we didn't have the antibiotics to treat TB. But now... We have these drug-resistant TBs because there's this increasing problem of antibiotic resistance. quarter to a third of the world's population are infected with TB. And of those, only, you know, a small percentage, say 5%, would die without treatment. Like 10% would get symptoms and then half those would die without treatment. So if you can imagine, like, how many people in the world have this infection, it's like... It's it's amazing, but it's your immune system can keep it in check. If you've got a strong immune system, mm. then you don't get sick with it. What happens is your body forms these kind of granulomas that, are like a waxy substance, kind of that traps the TB bacillus in the lungs. So people have these lesions and sorts of things, and these granulomas in the lungs, which traps the infection. But if you get like HIV, then your immune system is reduced, and it can't do that anymore. So the TB's released into the body and the person dies. So the prevalence of HIV, the rise in HIV, had a knock-on effect of creating a, a big rise in TB or, or people getting sick from TB. Mm. You know, you read through literature, don't you? It's things where they talk about consumption and they talk mm. about other things. Because, because people they didn't really know what it was to be consumed yeah. from within. And that's yeah. why they're linked to vampires. Oxford, who are working, who's still part of modernising medical microbiology, but the project's called Cryptic, and it's about being able to kind of diagnose TB from the genomes. They then got these little plates where they have little wells in, and they put different antibiotics in all the different plates, and then they put the TB in it and grew it. So what what they were able to do was to look at these plates and they used first of all they used like a game called bash the bug which is kind of crowdsourcing and they got people to say whether there was growth or no growth in these in these plates with these different wells Mm -hmm. in so they they had all the genome data and they knew whether there was growth or no growth and they used that to train ai and stuff like that as well to look at even more plates and process them and so they were able to compare the genomic data to whether the tb was growing in these plates 
And what that now means is that they've just published something that they've called a groundbreaking paper. Now, these scientists used to making grand claims when they're not... No. They are the most (laughs) reserved people. Yeah, Yeah. the most reserved people that you could imagine. And the fact that they've decided to call this a groundbreaking paper means it's really significant. And what they've managed to do is to show which of the first four frontline drugs for TB can be treated if you look at the genome they can now tell that these drugs will work on it or not which is the first time that's ever been done anywhere oh, that's in the world fantastic from the because genome. that means you can work out different treatments yeah. And different yeah before that people were guessing because you could have the genes for resistance but it wouldn't necessarily mean it was resistant but now they can look at the genes in this way and they can really tell if it is it's interesting resistant. because a year ago i was attacked by mm. a virus around a device in my body that went down to the heart mm. And there was clearly no knowledge of what that was. It wasn't a virus, sorry, an infection of some kind. Mm, like endocardial. All they did, this treatment for me, was pump me full of the t- world's two strongest antibiotics mm, mm. and laid me in bed for two weeks to mm. see what would happen. And then for another six weeks, I had things running up my arms into my heart. And, well, you you seen uh, that side. Yeah, yeah. That, but that was just hitting it with a hammer to see if you could sort yeah. of smack it in a sense. And, and actually, what's interesting from a personal point of view here, is that you're starting to say, okay, let's look at it properly. Let's look at this bit and work out, ah, this will be effective for that, this will be effective for that. Yeah. Rather than literally throwing a drug at it. Yeah, yeah. And, well, that means, because also, a lot of drugs have side effects. Mm. Well, if you had, like, the strongest ones, I mean, some of them, like colistin, which is famously, things are becoming resistant to colistin, which is, they call it this last-ditch antibiotic. There's a reason it's a last-ditch antibiotic. It's got horrible side effects. And, like, in the early days of tuberculosis, people were treated with streptomycin. A lot of the people developed deafness from that, from the antibiotic. So treating people with the wrong antibiotics sort of goes against the old traditional Hippocratic oath of do no harm. Mm. I mean, that's all questionable now because you kind of have to do harm in certain ways with medicine it's all very complicated but yeah this idea that you can now target the drug so they've now developed this protocol and obviously this can be used for in the future people will now start using this methodology to do it for other bacteria How are you putting all this into your work? Because, I mean, this is absolutely fascinating. Well, I mean, I work a lot with the stories and make these objects that tell the stories. So Mm. one of the pieces I made was about, this is a complicated piece, but I'll tell the story as briefly as I can. The piece was called Make, Do and Mend, and it was in collaboration with the scientists at Oxford and with Oxford Museum of History of Science there, which holds the collection of Florian Chain, who won the Nobel Prize with Alexander Fleming for the discovery of penicillin. Now, Fleming spotted the penicillin, that it was antibiotic, but he actually abandoned the research into doing it because it was too hard scientifically. And the scientists at Oxford University, who are, again, probably very much backwards in coming forwards about what they achieved, Mm. so they managed to turn this into an actual drug that could treat people. And the collection there has jars and things and when they were doing it in the beginning they treated the first patient with penicillin in 1941 and they were keeping the urine 
from the patients and re-extracting the penicillin Whoa. from it. And the patient said that they, the penicillin that had actually been through the body once was was much more pleasant because it used to be this, like, <laughs> boiling substance which was put into the body with a big oh, wow. needle and stuff. This is the early days. Yeah, yeah. And the first patient, they could only keep him alive for three weeks because they couldn't make the penicillin fast enough. So they didn't have enough to treat him fully so in the end he died and then they went on to collaborate with some americans who found i think on a melon another strain of of fungus that could produce a lot more antibiotic and so then they ramped up the production and fermentation and stuff so now we have the the drug and that's the start of the antibiotic age 1941 it's also right in the middle of world war ii People think it was to treat the wounds of soldiers and things on the battlefield, but actually the biggest scourge was gonorrhea, and the soldiers all getting yeah. gonorrhea, um, which which is really interesting because gonorrhea, and I'm doing, I'm hoping to do a project about it with the National Collection of Type Cultures because there's an ex- extensively drug resistant gonorrhea strain circulating now, so it's not treatable. Wow. So that's really nasty. But anyway. It's around the, this time that the UK government launched their Make, Do and Mend programme mm. where they produced these leaflets saying to housewives should patch and repair things, don't throw your clothes away. If your dress is unfashionable, take it in, do these things, you know, dress it up and, and don't keep throwing things away. And this idea of Make, Do and Mend is, is quite interesting. So now we've got antibiotic resistance and antibiotic resistant bacteria and I've got this antibiotic resistant Staphylococcus aureus living on me, for instance. So I was wondering whether I could take a bacteria and kind of back to its 1941 stage and remove its antibiotic resistance gene. And I wanted to do that using this cutting edge... Physically, genuinely do this to bacteria. I wanted to know if I could do it using this cutting edge DNA editing technique called CRISPR. It's a synthetic biology technique where you can basically... So that's CRISPR, C-R-I-S-P-R, if I'm... Yeah, clustered regularly into space, short palindromic repeats (laughs) is what it stands for. Um, (laughs) And basically people say you can easily cut and paste DNA with it. It's not that easy, I have to tell you, but it's easier than it used to be. So it takes like three months instead of two years now to do something like that. And it's becoming more and more finessed, so there are improvements and I'm hoping to do more work with it in the future but but I got an E. coli bacteria I did this project with Technion in Haifa and Amit Lab for synthetic something like the understanding of genomic codes they're basically trying to find the Rosetta Stone for DNA across species like wow. and, and things like that so anyway so they're very good at editing bacteria CRISPR they were like pioneers in in doing this so I went there to work with them and I wanted to do this so I cut out I'm doing it like that but it wasn't like sort of doing a scissor motion but that's a sort of metaphor because it's mostly pipetting lots of little bits of pipetting cut out this piece of DNA that had the antibiotic resistance gene in it do when it's a bacterial genome you have to repair it you have to patch it like the make do and men so I created a piece of DNA that encoded the word make do and mend basically converted from ascii code to base four to the dna and then i was able to attach that in the genome of the bacteria where the antibiotic resistance gene previously was so the bacteria could still live and so i created this new variation on an e coli strain it's not deadly is it 
No, actually, it, well, it, it's resistant to all... Oh, um, my God. No, it's not resistant. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, uh... Yeah, that's what I mean. It's, it's susceptible to all... Oh, right, because it's an all... older version of it. It's... No, because I've cut Oh, out... because you've cut it there. Yeah, yeah, it's useless. So, no, it's an, it's an art project because yeah. no scientist would ever do that. You do it the other way around because you want to grow it on a certain agar and test whether whether it's taken up a gene or whether it hasn't or something. So you, when you're doing, you'd put those genes in, you wouldn't take them out. It's, it's purely conceptual so, art. So, okay, the no, but this is great. So talk to me a little bit about, it is conceptual art actually, yeah. isn't it? And, and talk to me a little bit about the, the sort of meaning then artistically. So, so the make, do and men thing coincides with the controlled commodity brand which was uh, called the utility mark you might have heard of it in like the war like the the 60s and stuff furniture and clothes and stuff had this utility mark on it and it was cc is like a weird sort of pac-man shape cc 41 and that was stamped on clothes and furniture oh i do vaguely remember seeing it on things Yeah. yeah I was stamped on clothes and furniture that use things responsibly, sustainably, if you like. As you know. we should be doing yeah, now, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's 1941, this CC41 mark. And then also the start of the antibiotic age is, is 1941, so they coincide. Oh. But looking at antibiotic resistance, overuse of antibiotics and things like that, use of antibiotics, 70% of antibiotics are used in animals, farming around the world. It's a very big problem in America they're not supposed to do it here, but there's still an argument quite often made for what they call prophylactic use of antibiotics. And if, if somebody senses there's a bit of an infection somewhere, they can give them some antibiotics instead of like quarantining the animals or something like that. There's a sort of overuse of, of antibiotics. Also, in humans, we don't really know how to use antibiotics because this is all, you know... This we is know, we've seen the science. effects of them. But, but also, we didn't never knew how to... Yeah. So there's research areas called like pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, and that's how the body kind of responds to the drug and how the drug travels through the body and things like that. And these are emerging research areas. We didn't know anything about them. You know, we knew something about them, but we don't know nearly as much as we know now which is that we don't know much (laughs) and so these are emerging research areas and no drugs are ever tested on children no drugs are tested on women of childbearing age and all the drug amounts are inferred from you know size and stuff like that people have all got different genomes different dna they process drugs differently different people from different ethnic backgrounds process drugs differently so it's we're kind of still chucking them at people are we yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, to just yeah. see what works and see what sticks. Well, to an extent, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that, now we know we're doing that. Yeah. Whereas in the past, <laughs> people were very confident. Oh, we do this and this happens. Yeah, but yeah. now we have these access, to these new technologies. Now we we have a, we know how little we know now. So then I got this controlled commodity, nineteen forty-one. And, and I thought, well, the antibiotics weren't controlled commodities in the same way that dresses and, and furniture was. So that was really weird. And then this make, do and mend thing, this idea of patching, because this metaphor of patching reappears in synthetic biology a lot. You've got to patch the genome, you've got to repair the DNA. And I was like, well, can we repair antibiotic resistance like this? And it, as I said, it's a conceptual artwork. It's not a solution antibiotic resistance it's an artwork to kind of raise awareness of it so then i got a 1941 cc 41 wartime suit woman's suit that had moth holes in it and things i used embroidery silk that was impregnated with the bacteria grown with this bacteria like i do with the other Mm. piece that i mentioned 
to darn the holes and I grew the bacteria onto silk and used it to patch the holes in the in the suit so the suit becomes this patched and repaired story of this 1941 piece about this idea of make do and mend can we go back the start of the antibiotic age and then there's it's displayed with like leaflets and things like that and there's another version of it that's also displayed with the plasmids that are used to do the transformation on the on the bacteria so you can grow you can have these plasmids which are safe just dried is bits of dna dried into paper this is how scientists kind of send them around the world to share them and stuff like that as well for you for doing in science you dry them into filter paper so i was able to show those you're not allowed to exhibit live gm stuff in the uk so i couldn't show those in a gallery alive but i can show all the mechanisms for doing it i could show the but that's actually thrown into the paper. in a sense as interesting as, yeah. as the actual yeah, thing because how things work and, and yeah. the mechanisms to me no but i mean literally uh, the mechanisms i've yeah. got literally the plasmids which are these short pieces of dna that you use to do the crispr so that what they call the scissors and the molecular scissors and the repair fragment i dried them into this paper so they were shown wow with the dress and then i also had a small <laughs> bottle which has got a few tiny pieces of paper in the bottom and it's got maybe like 25 pieces of paper in the bottom of these little circles. And they're all antibiotic susceptibility discs. And they constitute, it's just a few little discs, one for each antibiotic that is currently used in UK hospitals. So basically we've got a, a, our armoury. It's about these 25 little antibiotics. <laughs> How do people react to this? Because obviously you've got an audience of science mm. people, but how do no, you, I mean, people off the street? No, I mean, mostly it's shown in art galleries and art museums. So what do they say to you about it? Older people understand the history of mm. it and they've had experiences with it and younger people are interested in the science behind it, also the aesthetics of it and the fact that you're confronted by these bacteria but they are sterilised or sometimes they're, they're shocked. I mean, that was the thing Burke said, is that the sublime shocks us into reflection. So it's it's this idea of maybe shocking people into reflection about where we are, making them think about these issues of antibiotic resistance, synthetic biology, new genomic technologies. go that was the latest episode of technique thank you so much to anna for being interviewed if you are interested in finding out more about her and her work she explains how you can on my website which is www.annademitriou.co.uk spelled a-n-n-a-d-u-m-i-t-r-i-u are you on twitter yeah at anna Dimitriou. instagram at anna Dimitriou arts and I have a page on Facebook. So, do get in touch with her if you want to find out more. 
Also, if you like the sound of this podcast, please don't forget to give us a review on iTunes. If you can give us a five-star rating and a review, it will help promote us to others. So please do that if you get a chance. And if you want to get in touch with me or Richard, you can do so on Twitter. We are on at Technique UK. That's all one word. Otherwise, we'll be back again next month with another episode. In the meantime, take very good care of yourselves, quite literally in the case of this episode. Take care and we'll speak to you again next month. Design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.